Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki, here as always with John Mitchell. We have the Pac-12 returning to play this week, along with the Mac, which is actually returning tonight, uh, as we are uh, putting this out to you guys on Wednesday morning. So yeah, we have two the last two holdouts returning this week. College football is, other than, at this point, I think it's only Old Dominion that held out, and New Mexico State. Uh, but we have 128 out of 130 teams will have played at least one game by the end of this weekend. So definitely have to talk about the Pac-12's return. We'll be doing that in this first segment. Then we'll get to some picks. But before we do, John, how's life down there in Alabama? Uh, everything's pretty good at the moment. Uh, excited to be back here again as, with you as always. One of the highlights of my week and discuss football with you. Man, always good to talk. You know, it, it's obviously a weird season. We've, you know, we have some teams that have already played seven games at this point, and the Pac-12 is just getting into action. It's, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, we've talked about it all throughout this summer, and, you know, when these teams first said they weren't going to be playing, we had a lot of things to say about it. And I think it, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit further about just what is this season going to look like for the Pac-12 this year? You know, we obviously previewed team by team, but, you know, I think, I guess the big question I just have hanging that I want to throw out to you first and foremost is, is the Pac-12 going to be happy or ultimately disappointed that they decided to come back in 2020? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think everybody week to week is kind of weighing the, still weighing kind of the morality of playing football in the middle of a pandemic with cases rising all over the country and it getting, you know, worse and worse. It's worse now with this wave currently of COVID than it was when we were first starting to have these conversations um, in March or any time after that. So, you know, I, I think they're happy to be back playing football, but it would only take an outbreak, I think, to start the regrets, to start sinking in. Like, you know, um, in the Big Ten, for instance, we talked about what is the Big Ten going to be able to do. They didn't build in any, um, you know, schedule flexibility to be able to play made up games. We've already seen an outbreak um, yeah. and at Wisconsin to where the Badgers have already had to cancel a game. Uh, who knows if they're going to have to cancel more than one game because of um, <clears throat> obviously we talked about the big tens more stringent rules as it pertains to um, testing out from having COVID. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, the PAC 12 doesn't really have flexibility either. Um, but, you know, there's an opportunity there, I think, with there not being, in terms of football terms, where there not being a ton of what looks like elite teams this year. Like, it feels like, to me, Zach, that we're basically seeing three spots almost taking up already, right? You've got 
probably Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson. I think everybody would agree at this point are the three best teams in college football. Um, Notre Dame's right there if they pulled the upset this weekend over Clemson with Trevor Lawrence still out. That's a different discussion. But that number four spot in the college football playoff looks as wide open as maybe it ever has been. It, it, we already look like we probably have already seen the Big 12 knock themselves completely out of contention for the playoff with Oklahoma State's loss to Texas, and there not being any unbeaten teams in the Big 12 at this point. Um, so the opportunity feels like it's really there for an unbeaten Pac-12 team, uh, a 6-0, 7-0 Pac-12 team, to have the opportunity to get that four seed in the playoff and, and have an opportunity to play for a national championship for the first time in a while. So I think the opportunities there for this to be a good year on the field for the Pac-12, and we'll see how they handle, it'll be interesting to see how they handle COVID-19 protocols and how they're able to contain as much as they can the virus in relation to every other conference so far, because we've seen outbreaks everywhere. Yeah, well, and I'm, you know, you mentioned the Big Ten, and you look at the case at Wisconsin and the fact that we've seen, you know, more than a dozen players fall, fall ill to it, and that's, I mean, one, it really exposes the fact that there's limited utility to these daily rapid antigen tests that they're running, you know. The Pac-12 is the one that originally decided this is the way we're going to go whenever we finally come back. And, you know, the Big Ten latched onto that as sort of this this cure-all, you know, to limit exposure and be able to cut down on contact tracing, um, you know, over time to limit the time that you have to go back in it. And as we've seen with Wisconsin, there's there's still a limit to how far that goes. The, there are still real risks here, and it you know I, I think that's something to keep in mind as well. Is these risks you know, they don't just fall to uh, you know death or or life. You know we had this story come out on Monday with Xavier Thomas from Clemson who tested positive back in April, and he said he wasn't back to breathing normally until the second week of play. That's, I mean, that's months. And what kind of long-term ramifications that has, we still don't know. You know, some of these guys could be risking pro careers if it hits them adversely enough. And And these are people who are like the pinnacle of athletics. Like, you know what I mean? Like, not guys like you and me. These are people who are in the best shape of anybody in the country. Yeah, this is not a 37, soon-to-be 38-year-old, you know, smoking, drinking, staying up too late, studying kind of guys. You know, I mean, these are guys who are up early working out and, you know, basically putting in all the work in the classroom that I do. And have, you know, I mean, I have my jobs, they have their full-time job playing football. It, it, it's, you know, I mean, the only difference is I get paid for my job. But that's, we've had those discussions. We won't necessarily go into that. But I think just from the health aspect, I still wonder whether this was the right decision. And 
We'll talk about this a little bit later, but I want you to just kind of marinate on this thought for a moment. Does a Pac-12 team have to get into the college football playoff this year to make it worthwhile for them to have come back? I want to just let that hang there for a second, um, because we're going to talk in a bit about the, the college football playoff a little further. But is there any team that you think can step out as a surprise this season in the conference, Sean? I mean, you know, we've heard the big stories, obviously, Oregon and USC are the teams that are coming into the season ranked, but can anybody else come in and swoop it out from under the feet of the Ducks and the Trojans? Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't want to discount, because it's bitten me so many times already, Arizona State with Herm Edwards there, you know, we talked about a while back being confused at that hire and not really expecting much out of the Sun Devils, and They've been much better than I think anyone really anticipated. And with Jaden Daniels back for his sophomore season, we saw how dynamic he had the potential to be last season. You know, he wasn't consistent enough, but he showed it in several cases. I know obviously you remember the Oregon game perhaps being the the biggest example of that, not to rub a salt in a wound or anything. Um, uh, but, you know – and he showed flashes of being one of the elite quarterbacks in the country. So if he can take that next step, then I think Arizona State's dangerous. And I like Cal a lot this year, too. Uh, if they can stay healthy, particularly on the offensive side of the ball at quarterback, I think they have a shot to to really make some noise. But, I mean, yeah, Oregon and USC definitely look to be the class, and everybody else is really fighting to see if they could claw into that that third spot or potentially overtake. But I think it's the Ducks and the Trojans, and that's – those are the two teams that give the Pac-12 the best opportunity to make the, the playoff this year. Yeah, you know, I, I th- obviously they're the front runners. Obviously, if any team's going to do it, I'd like to see the team in Eugene doing it. That's personal biases. I, I 185% everybody uh, know uh hiding or glossing over that fact that's that that's a fan's talk there i'd love to see that happen there's a lot missing in eugene though you know i mean obviously justin herbert's off to the nfl and looking damn good doing it and you know but beyond that basically your entire offensive line is retooled now that Panay Sewell isn't coming back for this season. He's opted out. You have a damn near a completely rebuilt secondary on defense. You know, you have a good front seven. You you lose some talent at linebacker. You have a, a boatload of talent coming in at linebacker. So I think that's a position where they can reload. But you know, the defensive backfield is just as much a, a, a curiosity as that offensive line for me. And everything comes down to how you deal with the passing game, both as an offense and as a defense in the Pac-12. I think that's what it's going to stem from this season. So I, I'm i nervous about Oregon's chances. It'll be really interesting to see how they do against Stanford. But I think you're right. If there's any team that's going to be a dark horse, it's probably Arizona State. They're just, you know, the most well-built team uh, in terms of returning talent. 
in in the um, in the South, other than USC, obviously, who's you know top five in terms of returning talent in the country. There's it. it <clears throat> it's a wealth of talent. There's really nothing you can say about that other than that. But I think. Yeah, this weekend's going to be a, a huge elimination game almost right out of the gate for the South. So it's going to be fun to talk about that a little bit in our next segment as well when we get into our picks. Who do you think is going to be the most disappointing team in this conference this year? Yeah, you know, with the the shortened schedule and everything, I don't know, unless it's somebody like USC or Oregon finishing roughly 500 in league play, I can't really see anybody being an actual disappointment because I don't think either of them are going to do that. And everybody else, you know, I, I think every fan base could see their team other than those two finishing, you know, with four or five wins or finishing with two or three wins. I think there's not that big of a difference this year with here. So I, I don't think there's a team in the PAC 12 that has unrealistic expectations. I want to pitch one more question to you before we get to talking about the college football playoff itself. So in the AP top 25 coming into week 10 with the PAC 12's return, you have Oregon at 12, you have USC at number 20. But there were four other teams that were re- that received votes this week. You had Utah, Washington, uh, Arizona State, and, and Cal. And so it's kind of a two-part question. What I want to ask you here is, out of those four, Utah, Washington, Arizona State, and Cal, which one will be ranked in the top 25 at the end of the season? And which one has the biggest chance of being a cellar dweller at the end of the season? Yeah, I like, I think the highest ceiling out of them is Arizona State, and the highest floor is probably Cal in my mind. So if I wanted to hedge my bet, I'd go Cal just because I think they have the smallest chance of finishing in the cellar. I worry about Utah this year, and maybe that's foolish of me because Kyle Whittingham has built a a quality program that's emerged from the, you know, non-automatic qualifier leagues into the Pac-12 and has become a contender in the Pac-12 year after year. But they've got a lot they've got to replace, particularly on the defensive side of the ball. They're one of the um, teams with the least amount of returning talent from a year ago. I hate to bet against Kyle Winningham, but we talked about all offseason how difficult of a year this would be for younger teams because you lost all the time in the spring you lost time in fall camp to get these younger guys up to speed and Utah is going to be relying on a lot of underclassmen in their two deep this year and it's just hard to see um, the Utes being able to rise towards the top so that's I'd probably go Utah having the best chance out of them to slip to the cellar. I think that's fair. I think Utah is definitely one of those teams where you look at, you know, last year was supposed to be their make or break year, and they made a hell of a push. I mean, let's acknowledge that. Obviously, the House of Cards came collapsing at the end, but they made a hell of a push to get where they did last season. But we kind of knew that this was, you know, this was a rebuilding year. Both them and LSU last season was their chance to push for it. LSU came up aces high. 
and, you know, Utah crapped out. Ultimately, like, the team I look at, we're talking about, you know, sort of these transitions and changes. I look at Washington and, you know, the fact that Jimmy Lake is stepping in. And obviously there's some continuity there in the transition, but Chris Peterson isn't the head of that program anymore. And if you're looking at a first-year head coach navigating a situation where, you know, he's trying to get his philosophy in place, he's trying to keep the team motivated, and, you know, he's having to do that in a situation that's, you know, it's already new to him, but he's having to basically work on the flying unfamiliar world as well. So I think in those regards, just not just a first-year head coach, but a first-time head coach as well. So that's the team I look at that honestly looks to me like it has the chance of kind of slipping the most because, as you said, Utah obviously, if nothing else, has the brain trust in place to do what Utah is going to do. You know, maybe the players aren't prepared, you know, and all of this is obviously contingent on... Do players get sick? Do we have a situ situation like Wisconsin that comes up? But, you know, in a perfect world where all of the players they have get to play, they're all as healthy as possible. And, you know, you look at all the other factors and strip it away. I think the fact that he's a first-year, first-time head coach probably has mm -hmm. Washington in, in my spot as that team that could slip the most. Yeah, I mean, they Utah certainly has the culture already of, of being a winning program that, you know, the younger guys know if they buy in that they're going to have success because the guys before them did. <clears throat> and who knows? Jimmy Lake's an unknown variable at this point. He could prove to be a, an excellent head coach. He could prove to be a disappointment. And, you know, we've seen plenty of times where a coach stepped to the side and they promoted from within and everybody said the culture and everything was going to remain the same. And quickly that slipped away. Obviously it works in some places. Oklahoma's had a ton of success with Lincoln Riley taking over for Bob Stoops, but we've seen even more cases of it not working out as well. So who knows? I mean, I think that's uh, good. I think we could probably agree that those are the two programs most likely from them being Washington and Utah and, you know, I think one of them could easily slip to the cellar, if not both, to be honest. It's true. I mean, we've got two divisions there. Each one could be sitting at the bottom of him by the end of the year. But that brings us full circle to who's going to be standing at the top of them when all is said and done. Who's going to be playing for the conference championship? And will that team be in the top four of the college football playoff standings? So... You know, we we did this in, in the preseason over the summer, but I think pretty much, you know, other than what we said about individual teams for the most part, um, barring players that opted out, we can, you know, pretty much kind of just toss that aside. And it, it's, a, it's a whole new ballgame at this point. So, you know, how do you see the divisions, or at least... Let's just, you know, talk about who do you see it winning each of these divisions? Who do you see winning the Pac-12 championship game? Yeah, I'm sticking with Oregon and USC. That's who I had in the – that's boring, I know, but that's who I had 
you know, a couple of months ago when we were first talking about the Pac-12. I'm sticking with that, except I've got the flip, the flip winner uh, on this case because I had Oregon in the preseason. I actually like USC at this point. I think opt-out wise, particularly losing Panay Sewell. When I mean, aren't not even really arguable the best offensive lineman in college football, a lock to be a top five pick. That's a really big loss when you're breaking in a new quarterback to not have that stud left tackle that you know your blind side is good. You know you don't have to worry about feeling backside pressure. He's got you. You know what I mean? Like, that guy's got you. No concern. So, I think that loss is is really significant. I think USC has a lot of firepower with Keaton Slovis and all the receivers they have. And I think the Trojans win the Pac-12, but I don't see them getting into the playoff. I think they'll slip up somewhere, and I just don't know if a one-loss Pac-12 champion gets the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, you know, I think that's a fair thing to mention there. And I I kind of vacillate because on one hand, I mean, I think USC probably comes out of the South. That, I think, is is probably a fair statement. If they don't, Arizona State is going to, is the way I see that. Um, and, I, you know, I'm tempted to say Arizona State comes up aces this weekend, but... You know what? I'm going to say it. I think it will be Arizona State because, you know, you know, just a heads up for, I guess, the the second segment. I think Arizona State's going to win straight up against them. I think it's going to be a something of a shocker, but I think Arizona State has enough talent coming back on defense to make that happen. Um, and the fact that they have Jaden Daniels back does kind of make up for the fact that they lost a lot of other parts on their offense. So I, I think they're going to pull off the upset at the Coliseum. And uh, I think that means we're going to shift to a different Pac-12 game to talk about in the, the next segment. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's just simply the case. Is I think Arizona State is is going to make that statement. As far as Oregon in the North, I'm really nervous about the Ducks' chances of, you know, getting it done based on everything they did lose and the fact that we've seen so many more opt-outs along the way. Um, But I really don't know who stands out in the North besides them, so I'm going to stick with them just because, you know, loyalty and... um, inertia which is what the north kind of feels like right now uh and i as much as i hate to say it you mentioned Jaden daniels last year against the ducks i i imagine in the pac-12 championship game he does something stupid like that again and uh arizona state gets in and um yeah i i don't think a 7-0 arizona state team is going to get nearly the respect that they probably should in that situation um, should a Pac-12 team get into there? Um, obviously if the league ends up like the Big 12 did this season where there is no undefeated team, probably not, especially with only seven games. If you can't get through seven games unscathed, you probably don't deserve it. Um, but if a team does and looks really damn good doing it, I think they should, uh, get in, but as everything stands right now, probably not given the, the parody that generally has happened over the past few years in the Pac-12. 
Yeah, this, you know, not to get off subject of the Pac-12, but feels like perhaps the best opportunity for a group of five or a BYU team to to make the college football playoff. If it's, <coughs> excuse me, if it's ever going to happen, it feels like BYU or Cincinnati or perhaps Boise State, if they beat BYU this week, uh, has a chance to really take a significant leap and have that shot as number four. And really, let's let's do it. Yeah, I mean, please. You know, I think if nothing else, you know, I mean, you if you like the system the way it is right now at just four, you have to eventually throw a group of five, a deserving group of five challenger into that mix, or you're eventually going to have the the, the change forced upon you. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's, you know, when Congress starts getting involved, as they did after the 06 season, change starts to happen. And that's why you saw the BCS kind of put into place more lenient uh, policies, and, you know, in terms of uh, accessibility for what was then called non-AQ teams. But, you know, the group of five won a lot of concessions in the college football playoff because of that outside pressure that came. And if you want to stave off some of that outside pressure, you put a team in in the wackiest of seasons where the legitimacy of everything is going to be challenged anyway. You know, everybody's going to be discussing for decades to come just how mythical this championship was. And... Spoiler alert, everybody, every damn one of these things is mythical, so you can debate it all day long. That's why we love college football, is because none of this is ever set in stone, no matter how much you think that that title claim or whatever else is set in stone. We have such wacky structures that it, it you know, this season is just exposing how wacky it is, the fact that we have a conference returning in week 10 for its first you know, set of games. Anything else you want to say about the Pac-12 on that note, John? Since I think we, you know, both went far afield and still stuck to the spirit of what the hell we were talking about. No, I, I think that's the spirit of the Saturday Blitz plot podcast right there. We talk about one thing and then tangents happen and whatnot. So I think that's pretty fitting. Awesome. Well, let's head to break then, everybody, quickly. We'll, we'll be right back after this moment uh, to talk about picks for this upcoming Week 10 against the spread. Five big games on the schedule. And uh, so get yourself something to drink. Go take a leak. Take a stretch. Let the dog outside. Do whatever it is you need to do. Make sure you come back with us. back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We just finished talking about the return of the Pac-12, and for those of you really excited about Maction, sorry we didn't talk about it more this week, um, but as we said, you know, unfortunately with the Max return, I think it'd be just as hard for the, 
them to slip into that group group of five spot is it, it is for the Pac-12 to slip into the college football playoff this year. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. So we're sorry that we didn't talk about it more, but there's your gratuitous mention to the MAC because we're not picking any of their games this week, even though they're playing tonight. So what do you say we get to some of these picks against the spread, John? Um, where would you like to start? We had five games penciled in, and, uh, you know, I think probably the big one on Friday night is the one we want to get to first, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we've got that BYU-Boise State game that's coming up. A huge game of ranked non-Power 5 programs. You've got BYU that, you know, I mean, they're sitting at number 9 right now. This is, let's face it, when the Cougars left the Mountain West a decade ago, this was the moment they were dreaming for when they were undefeated in November and sitting in the top ten of the polls, and nationally relevant in the discussion. So this is this is BYU's moment, and they've done it despite the fact that they play a schedule just about as hard as they did to win the 1984 national title. Um, but, you know, they actually get a tough test this weekend. The return of the Mountain West opened the doors for the Broncos to... Uh, get special dispensations from the Mountain West along with San Diego State to set up these games against BYU. So the conference gets a couple of huge tests as well. And I I think it's great for all sides. Uh, this is actually something I wrote about uh, in a Sunday morning quarterback that returned uh, last Sunday. So, you know... It's a rivalry. It's a very recent rivalry when you get down to it. They've only ever previously played 10 games against each other. It's been a rivalry largely dominated by Boise State. And coming into this weekend, it's, you know, actually the Cougars, the road team on the Smurf turf that's favored by two and a half points. Uh, This was originally a a pick-em as it opened on Sunday, but... We already see the line shifting toward BYU. And do you think that BYU is the better team here, John? Do you think they're going to win this game? Yeah, I mean, perhaps the most, if you want a snapshot of 2020 to be remembered by, look at the, go to ESPN and look at the BYU-Boise State matchup. 7-0, a 7-0 team playing a 2-0 team in November is perhaps the, best way to describe all of 2020 in general uh not just football so i think we got a really interesting game here i think the cougars are in really good position particularly if they can win this game and boise state wins every other game they play to really make a run for that four spot in the college football playoffs Uh, having zach wilson at quarterback is a huge thing for that too because he's become so nationally relevant as a guy that we're starting to talk about as a potential first round pick that he gets that kind of star power that we don't always have for a, you know, non power five program, an independent or a group of five teams. So I think having that guy that, that people can 
see and and get excited about that kind of superstar talent, I think is a a big thing for BYU. So I I think this has got a chance to be a really good game. Uh, It'll be interesting to see if Hank Bachmeyer is able to play for Boise State. Uh, But Jack Sears, the USC transfer, looked pretty damn good himself as well. So I think Boise State's in a good shape um, from a quarterback standpoint. Surprising to see them be underdogs on their home turf. You know, the Smurf turf's always been a really difficult place for, for teams to play. But I think this BYU team is legit. If anyone who, who listens to us also follows Bill Connolly on uh, ESPN now, his resume SP plus rankings, BYU's a top four team right now, just based on their current resume and the level of play they've had. Uh, against the competition they face. So, yeah, I, I like BYU in this game. Uh, I, I think they go to Boise State and get a, a really big win. Uh, they they cover the, the short spread, like 31-27 Cougars is what I'm thinking. You know, it, it's interesting. I It almost feels like there's one too many quarterbacks in, in Boise right now. I, I Sears played almost too well, you know. If Bachmeyer is healthy, what you know, everything was undisclosed. So what kept him out? Whatever kept him out is if he's healthy again and good to go on Friday night. I, there's a lot of hard decisions to be made by Brian Harson and crew, and frankly, I like the fact that BYU has everything settled at this point. There's yeah, as you said, they're seven and zero. They're one of the few teams in the country that's gotten to seven and zero before November rolled around, and so I, I I'm with you. I think BYU definitely covers that spread, but I think they do it even more handily. You know, I think you know you mentioned thirty one twenty seven. I think that's fair. I think it's like, but I think it's like thirty eight or forty one twenty seven. I think it's a big win for BYU. That only opens the doors even further. I mean, they could push another spot or two up in the polls this week, and that would be huge for them. So I, I, I loved, you know, I love seeing big games like this outside of the Power Five. I, I think this is something that group of five teams need more, and I love the. What this season is showing us more than anything, if I can just proselytize for a moment. And I can because this is our podcast. That's what we're allowed to do on it. Um, is It's showing us that this idea of scheduling games 10, 12, 15 years out is totally, pardon my language, totally fucking stupid. There is no reason to be scheduling that far out. You set your team, your team up for... The potential of disaster, you know, for teams that are trying to be powerhouses, you schedule a team that's a powerhouse now that you're hoping holds on to that 15 years down the line, you're more likely to be set up for disappointment than happiness in that situation. If you can set up good matchups and you can get it done in a matter of days, why are we still playing this charade? Yeah, I mean, it's fun for fans to talk about the notion of playing them. But honestly, the students who are there, and honestly, probably a lot of the alumni who are buying season tickets at that point, 
won't necessarily be the ones who are buying them anymore. Are they going, you know, are the people who are going to be buying those 15 years down the line going to be excited about the matchup you're setting up? Possibly not. With the flexibility we're seeing here, we're seeing that you can set up so many better matchups so easily. The flip side of that, obviously, is, you know, we could obviously see fewer cupcake games if you can set up good games like that. But for a group of five and independent schools, this sort of flexibility could be a godsend moving down the road for, you know, bolstering the resume of, you know, like the group of five working together and saying, hey, we see this team is the one that has the best shot of getting into the college football playoff finally. Let's have these two teams schedule against them. And if they win, they obviously have enough of a case to do it. Let's see more of that. That's what we get here with BYU-Boise State. But that's enough of me ranting about the game. We've already finished picking. so. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, though. I love the, the... The one good thing that hopefully comes out of this is more scheduling flexibility in the future because being able to have those matchups um, <clears throat> that come to, come to pass uh, quickly like that I think is better uh, for the strength of the game instead of scheduling, like you said, games 15 years out in the future that could end up being what looks like a good game now and then everything changes, obviously, year to year in college football. It all falls down. I mean, if there's any universal truth in this game it's that if your team is a powerhouse you're eventually going to understand disappointment i mean notre dame was good for decades and obviously they're a top four team right now but there's been a lot of years of disappointment over the past three decades for for irish fans past three and a half decades. I mean, you go back to Jerry Faust, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm sorry to say it, John, your team is the hegemon of college football at the moment. They're the best, you know, they, they've had the, one of the most historic runs in history. Y- you and I both know that runs eventually going to end. That's just the, the case. And, uh, but, you know, I don't even know where I was trying to go with that rant, but we're going to have fun with it, eh? Let's move on to the next game. I'm being ridiculous here. Let's move on to the next game. We have uh, Michigan, who surprisingly, or not surprisingly, because I did have them still projected in, in the top 25 projections this weekend, they're still ranked by the AP, but just barely after that loss to Michigan State. But they're going to play an Indiana team that, you know, I mean, I, I can't say they've necessarily been a revelation because they almost hit nine wins last year. You know, this is a damn good Hoosiers team in Bloomington under Tom Allen. But those Hoosiers, despite being 2-0, and are three-and-a-half-point underdogs on their home turf against a 1-1 Wolverines team. Why do you think Vegas isn't giving Indiana enough, any respect here, John? I think it's more your standard better and not giving the respect to Indiana. Michigan still has that name value that I think 
the Hoosiers are still far away from claiming. But, I mean, Indiana's the better football team on paper to me coming into this game based on what we saw. I mean, I think <clears throat> looking back, obviously, revisionist history, being able to look back, too, uh, in hindsight that Michigan's blowout win over Minnesota in the season opener probably said more about Minnesota than it did Michigan as we saw the Gophers then dropping to Maryland um, uh, this yeah. past weekend. So I think I think Indiana's the better team. I, I think Michigan's defense has some real problems that uh, kind of went unnoticed in week one. I think their secondary in particular – uh, Michigan State was able to hit a lot more big plays against them than I believe anybody would have expected. So I think Michael Penix has a, a really strong game from Indiana. I like the Hoosiers to win outright, not just to cover the spread here. Uh, 27-24 is what I had. Oh, hell, I think this is going to be a spanking, John. And may- Maybe this is my week for projecting blowouts again. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago where I just seemed to go off the deep end. Um, and, and just think that they were going to be a lot of ugly games that were done by the third quarter. Maybe that's just wishful thinking for the guy that writes top 25 projections every week or something. But, uh, yeah, I think Penix lights it up. I, I think that Indiana puts on a clinic at home, and I think the Wolverines, you know, kind of whimper back to Ann Arbor with their tail between their legs after, like, a 34-10 victory. I think Indiana I think Indiana consolidates their position in in the top 25 this week just totally locks down and says, "Yes, we are the team that's going to push this year um against Ohio State." And I think that yeah, we're going we're not going to hear anything else about Michigan being back after this. You know, they got the benefit of the doubt after that loss to Michigan State, but that was a Michigan State team that lost to Rutgers, and for as good as Rutgers might be looking this season compared to the way they have in season past, that's a Michigan State team that lost to Rutgers. And so... I do not have any confidence at all in this Michigan team. I think you're absolutely right about Minnesota uh, getting just mollycoddled by them is more indicative of just how much is missing in Minneapolis than it is how revolutionized Michigan is. So yeah, I I, I think it's going to be another one of those double-digit blowouts that just looks absolutely ugly and allows me to have that slide and move on to other projections by the end of the third quarter. I really don't pick them to be that fun, do I? But, uh, you know, maybe this game will be a bit more fun. We've got... A, but then again, it's it's 2020, we're in the midst of a pandemic, and how exciting can the world's largest outdoor cocktail party actually be? I That's it's a big question on a lot of people's minds right now, but how exciting can the world's largest outdoor cocktail party be? Probably not nearly as exciting as you'd think from the sense of a cocktail party, but we have one of two matchups of top 10 teams this week. And uh, 
in this game with uh, Georgia and Florida against one another. You've got number five and number eight playing. So Georgia's obviously just kind of been chugging along, you know, since that Bama loss. You know, same, you know, just workmanlike performances week after week. It was, what, 14-3 against Kentucky this past weekend. Florida's been... They've been, well, I mean, let's face it, Dan Mullen is Darth Vader, right? Isn't, isn't, isn't that the, the, you know, the way he's playing himself up now? And uh, I think they're just as unpredictable. And, I, I, you know, as a three-and-a-half-point favorite there in Jacksonville, you know, Georgia's getting... Uh, are given those three and a half points on a neutral field and a, a neutral field that's obviously very familiar to both these teams in this matchup against one another. You know, we talked about it at the beginning of the season, whether or not this was Florida's year to steal away the SEC East from Georgia. But given what we've seen, given the way things have shaken out in this pandemic-stricken season... Um, given how cavalier Florida's been with things this, you know, pandemic-stricken season, is it actually the year that Florida can steal this away? Or is Georgia going to cover that spread and just run away with things in Jacksonville? Yeah, it, it, it's going to be an interesting game for sure. Um, I, I think that it's, you know, it's strength and strength strength versus strength and weakness versus weakness when you got Florida's offense against Georgia's defense and then Georgia's offense against Florida's defense, right? So <clears throat> obviously Georgia's got one of the better defenses in the country, but offensively they've really struggled. I mean, you, you talked about a 14 to three win over Kentucky last week, and it just feels like they have a, a ceiling with Stetson Bennett at quarterback. I just don't think he's dynamic enough for them to be a legitimate national championship contender. You got to wonder how much longer it's going to be before Kirby Smart rolls the dice with JT Daniels. You got to feel like your ceiling goes up with a guy as talented as Daniels versus a guy like Bennett. So I, I think this is going to be a really good game. Uh, really interesting. I don't, I think Florida found some things defensively last week against Missouri. Uh, they looked a lot better on that side of the ball. And offensively, I think they've got a guy in Kyle Pitts who's just kind of a nightmare matchup for anybody. And I think he's going to wreak some havoc in the middle of that Georgia defense. And I think Trask has a really strong game. I just worry that Stetson Bennett won't be able to keep up if unless Georgia's defense just outright dominates. And this will be, you know, we saw Alabama's offense have quite a bit of success against Georgia a few weeks ago. And this Florida offense has actually statistically been slightly better um, in, in several categories than Alabama's offense. So this is a really quality Florida offense. I think they'll be able to put up some points, and I just don't think that Bennett will be able to keep pace uh, in this one. So I, I think Florida wins it 28-24, and the Gators take control of the SEC East. I love it. I, I, I'm, I love changing the guard. I love when – Divisions get flipped on their head. I love when leaders are unseated. Um, 
at the same time, I, I really wonder about that Florida defense. Are they going to make Stetson Bennett look better than he is? Um, you know, Zamir White obviously has looked great. How, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if he could go for 200 yards against that Florida defense the way they played this year. So, um, I, you know, I think it's probably, I agree with you that Florida is going to cover. I think it's probably something more of a, a I, I think Georgia wins, but I think it's probably 27-24. Or, you know, even like, I don't know. I think that Georgia defense is going to do a, a decent job against Trask. They're very familiar with Florida by this point. And, uh, you know, they have enough tape on them that they know what they're going to do. I think part of getting kind of spanked by Alabama is... Um, you know, for as good as Alabama's offense has been the past couple of years especially, it, it hasn't always looked exactly the same from year to year. You know, there's there hasn't been defensive um, permanence. It, it, they're successful because they're fluid in that regard. And I think with more tape, Florida's got a... Or, you know, with more tape on Florida, they have a better chance of being dynamic against that offense than they did against the Tide when they played them. So, I, yeah, I think it's Georgia 27-24. I think Florida covers that three-and-a-half-point spread, but they do it just barely so. And they do it leaving Jacksonville disappointed. So we have a little disagreement this week. Yeah, I, fair enough. I, I think that this is – I think this – cocktail party is huge for Dan Mullen because he's already lost you know a couple of times in this rivalry game so this is a huge one with what Georgia looks to be lacking offensively and in a weird year it'd be really big for him to finally get this win over the Bulldogs indeed and you know you mentioned lacking and I think that's a big storyline in the next game we're going to be talking about because top rank Clemson you know, they were very close to slipping to number two behind the Crimson Tide this week. The only two points separated the teams in the AP Top 25, uh, and Clemson melted away <clears throat> almost 20 first-place votes to Alabama, I think. It was something like that, 18 or 19 of them. So, you know, they're definitely leveling off right now. The game against Boston College was something of an eye-opener um, with Trevor Lawrence out, and we now know that Lawrence will not be able to go to South Bend to play against Notre Dame as well. So you have this number one, number four matchup, and it's, you know, it's obviously one of the premier games of the week. Clemson still comes in as a five-and-a-half-point favorite. But, you know, it, it, Notre Dame is on their home field. And this was a game that opened with Clemson only favored by two and a half. So that line is shifting a bit. But um, going off that five and a half that we see right now locked into when we're talking, do you think Clemson is still the top-ranked team at the end of next weekend? Yeah, I, I think... It, it... I think they will because I think they're going to win this game. And I, I, 
with Alabama having a bye week, if they didn't make the jump last week as much as Clemson struggled against Boston College, I don't think the AP would jump Alabama over Clemson if the Tigers beat a top five team on the road this week. So I think, um, you know, obviously not having Trevor Lawrence is huge, but DJ Uyangalale showed why he was the top ranked quarterback prospect in college and recruiting last year. He looked really good in his first start. I mean, the issues they had against Boston College were certainly not because of him. I thought he really played uh, really good football in that game. And, you know, obviously going on the road and playing at a place like Notre Dame is, is a different ball game. Obviously with diminished capacity, it won't have that same kind of feeling um, as it would if there was, you know, 80,000 screaming Notre Dame fans in that stadium. But I still just don't think Notre Dame has the same kind of talent level as this Clemson team does. I think Clemson's defense will make life really tough on Ian Book. I think they're going to force a couple of turnovers ended up being the difference. I like Clemson by two touchdowns, even without Trevor Lawrence. I think this would have been an even bigger blowout if he was playing, but I still like Clemson here 31-17, and I think they probably gained back a few number one votes. See, I'm... I guess we have to agree to disagree again, John, because you're absolutely right that the problem for Clemson against Boston College wasn't quarterback. It wasn't the fact that Lawrence was out at all. It was that defense, and it was costly mistakes, and it was susceptibility to getting burned, and... I mean, on one hand, I've never been the type of guy who's absolutely convinced that Ian Book is the revelation. I mean, seeing what Phil Jerkovich did against Clemson kind of makes me wonder if they kept the right quarterback at times. But, you know, I I think that Brian Kelly and that staff, I think Ian Book... I think, you know, a guy like Hiram Williams, Sebo Flemister in the backfield, they're good enough to exploit a defense that's just not nearly as good at Clemson as it has been in recent seasons. And so I I think you're probably right that Clemson wins this game. I I I think this is one that's really close and down to the wire though. I think this is one where the score probably changes hand, like the lead changes hands four or five times. And I, I think Clemson wins it on a late score to get thirty one twenty seven victory. But I think it definitely comes over the five and a half we're seeing now. You know, if it was at two and a half where it opened at, I would definitely take Clemson with, you know, against the points. But right now I've got to take Notre Dame covering that, but Clemson coming out with the victory. And you're absolutely right. I I think that a victory, no matter how many points it is against a top five Notre Dame team is enough to keep Clemson up in a week where Alabama's on a bye. I think they only fall out of the top rank if they, if Notre Dame does pull off the upset. But I, I don't think they're going to be recovering much ground. They might gain, you know, they were at 15-15 points 
and Alabama was at 15-13. It was 33-29 in first place votes. I see maybe two first place votes swinging their way. I see it like a 35-27 sort of divide, and I see Clemson gaining maybe like 15 to 20 points in the poll, but that's about it. So we got a little difference. We got just a little bit of difference, everybody. Even if we are saying the same teams are ultimately going to win. I already told you my thoughts on the uh, Arizona State-USC game in the previous segment. I just kind of blurted them the hell out there. Um, you know, quickly, John, you know, do you think that USC or... Arizona State is going to win that game since we did talk about it briefly. I like USC in it, but I think Arizona State covers the spread. I think it was roughly a 10.5 point spread last time I looked. So I think the game's closer than that, but I think USC wins maybe by a touchdown. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I think it's Arizona State by a field goal. I think it's another close game. But let's move on to the last game we're actually looking at picking this week. Staying out in Pac-12 country because the Pac-12 is back. It's another 10.5 point spread there in Eugene as Oregon welcomes Stanford. Do you think that the Sharps in Vegas are giving Stanford too little respect? especially given what we've talked about already with Oregon and what they did lose this year? Or do you think that this line's about right and that Oregon can cover this? I think it's about right because I think Stanford's kind of a program on a downswing right now. I think talent-wise, they've really fallen off the last few years in recruiting. And I think they're a program that's kind of trending in the wrong direction, while Oregon is obviously trending in the right direction. And even with losing some of the guys to opt out and, you know, obviously just a graduation and stuff last year, they're recruiting at a level that no one else in the Pac-12 can even really sniff right now. Not USC, not anybody. Like Mario Cristobal is bringing in ridiculous levels of talents into Eugene um, and, and really making this program the class of the Pac-12 as is. So I, I like the Ducks. I, I'm apprehensive with, you know, breaking in a new quarterback, um, you know, how good that person's going to be, Tyler show, um, how he's going to be able to perform. You never know until the lights are on. Right. So I, I still like the ducks though. I think talent wise, they're just a much better team. I think Stanford just isn't the same Stanford we've seen over the last decade or so. I like, uh, Oregon on this one by two touchdowns. I'd love to hear that from a fan standpoint. I, you know, and I think you're right about Stanford. It's just one of those, you know, for as much talent as they have returning this season, how how does that talent match up? The Cardinal always have difficult recruiting, you know. I mean, you could say it's an advantage, a disadvantage, whatever. There are stringent ac academic standards at Stanford that just aren't the same at a lot of other schools in the Pac-12. Um, and I say that as a duck, but I also say that as somebody who got rejected to a PhD program at Stanford. So, um, you know, having under, you know, engaged at different points in the academic, my academic career with both institutions, at least in some way, 
Stanford's always going to have a harder time pulling in top five, top ten recruiting classes like Cristobal is right now. The genius of their system with Harbaugh and then with David Shaw has always been the fact that they've kind of found the round pegs for the round holes of their system. They've always found guys who could really just execute perfectly, who had, you know, solid academic records in high school, um, who could meet Stanford's requirements, and who they sold that opportunity to be, you know, to kind of live up to this, you know, classical Greek ideal of sound mind and a sound body and, and getting that education, you know, that high class education welded onto let us turn you into finely tuned athletic machines. Uh, and yeah, I mean, whether or not selling that story is just not working as well anymore. Um, I don't think David Shaw has suddenly become a bad coach. I don't, you know, and I can't speak to his larger staff. I haven't looked at staff changes recently, but it makes you wonder what's happened there in terms of the guys they are sending out recruiting because something's off with the story. That said, I'm, I, I, I mentioned it last segment, I'm nervous about this Oregon team. I don't know how well they're actually going to do. Um, so until further notice, I'm going to stay skeptical. I'm not going to go so far as to say they're going to lose this game. I, I think that would be ludicrous of me to do. But I, I am going to say that Stanford does at least cover a double-digit spread. Um, especially because Autzen Stadium won't be rocking. You know, I, I know how loud that stadium can get. And I know how much it can throw off opponents. And that's not going to be there for them this year. So, you know, I think Stanford has a little bit easier time inside that venue. And, uh, you know, they walk away, you know, 38, 31 losers. But I think Oregon's defense has that potential to get torched a few times through the air on the back end as well. So, you know, I think it's going to be strikes and gutters. I think Tyler Show throws uh, at least one interception. I could see Stanford doing something crazy with it. So... I think they're going to get some advantages from all phases of the game, but ultimately Oregon just has too much talent across the board to completely lose that game. So, what are we, three of five different picks there? Yeah, um, some different differences this week, so that's good. Yeah, so there you go, everybody. That's uh, that's how we do it. Uh we're, it, it's not a big old love fest agree moment this time. We will have some disagreement. So, um, for the games we didn't, di you know, agree on, probably bet with John. That's usually how these things seem to work out. Um, and, uh, you know, at the same time, what the hell are you doing betting on football in a pandemic, you degenerate? Love it. It's just, you know, I... I I'm sitting here talking to you with a beer on a Wednesday morning, so, you know, who's who's talking degenerate, right? Any last words you want to throw out there about this week, John? 
I, I think we've said a lot of things. I think some of them might sound crazy to the rest of the viewer, you know, listeners out there, but you got any you got any more crazy to throw out in this crazy, crazy season? No, you know, it, it, it finally feels like a real college football season because we get Wednesday night action. So, you know, uh, we didn't talk a lot about the Mac, but, you know, you mentioned it earlier, but having Wednesday night football again makes is perhaps maybe the most normal thing that's happened this entire calendar year. You know what's made it feel like a college football season to me, John? Walking to campus in 32-degree weather where the wind chill has it down to 15. That made it feel like college football season yeah. to me because that's cold as hell and that, that's football weather. Um, so the fact that all these conferences are returning right at a time when football weather is actually football weather rather than the steaminess of August is... I mean, it's kind of brilliant in a way from a, a narrative standpoint. At the same time, I'm still, you know, obviously, it, Mr. Dower is still saying, what the fuck are we still doing playing? Um, especially with, you know, another team I, I, I enjoy following, the Badgers, not playing now. Uh, so, yeah. On that note, everybody... Now, now that I leave you on that nice little pissy end note, uh, you all have yourself a wonderful week. Enjoy Week 10 action. Uh, stay safe. Wear your masks. Um, don't go crazy now that we're starting to see election results roll in. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again next Wednesday.